1: Our guest today is a best-selling author and has advised presidents, senators, governors, Fortune 100 corporations, and universities for 35 years. Doug Sosnick served as an advisor to President Clinton for six years as senior advisor for policy and strategy, White House political director, and deputy legislative director. He's the co-author of New York Times bestseller, Applebee's America, how successful political, business, and religious leaders connect with the new American community. Doug Sosnick, welcome to Words Matter.
2: Great. Thanks for uh, for having me. So,
0: Doug, uh, I always like to share with people beforehand uh, whether the guest is a friend or just someone we've brought in who's an expert. So it explains why with my friends, which you are one, why I can be so mean to you for the next 45 minutes. Oh, great. Let me add I mean, one thing to the intro. And it was one of those great moments of working together in the White House um, where Doug was introduced to Boris Yeltsin. And Bill Clinton said to President Yeltsin, this is this is Doug Sosnick, he's the finest political mind in the world. And I was a few feet away, and then the president introduced me, and the president kind of paused and said, this is the guy who explains all the dumb things I do. So there we go. He's he's the finest political mind in the world, and I'm behind the elephant truck. That's quite an
1: intro. There we go.
0: It is true that um, uh, Doug has a better sense of what's going on in the country than people who sit on Twitter and pontificate like I do on television. Uh, I wish he would actually uh, share with more, but we're lucky to have you here today. Let's talk at 35,000 feet about the election. A lot of people talk about this as a turnout election and, and the Democrats being energized and the energy on the Democratic side being what will save the party. Um, my guess is you've got a slightly different view there on turnout. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, I think, first of all, we should probably expect to have the highest turnout. In history. We had the highest turnout in 2018 for a midterm in over 100 years. And say what you want about Donald Trump, he's done more to uh, create more energy and civic engagement than any politician in our lifetime. So I think we probably will have the highest turnout in history. I do remember, though, that uh, in the last election, uh, 100 million people did not vote. So even with a higher turnout, there's a large percentage of people, almost 40% in our country, who are eligible to vote who don't vote. And so back to your question, Joe, I think that uh, it's a false choice between either it's a turnout election or a swing voter election. The fact is, I think it's both. Neither party or neither candidate of, the, of either party can get reelected without an energized base to turn out. Um, but I think that while it's small, I think the swing voters in the handful of states that are going to decide the next president if it's a close election, I don't think you can get elected um, without getting those swing voters. And I think Hillary Clinton proved that in 2016 uh, when Trump was able to get uh, a large percentage of the swing voters, uh, many of those, 17% of the people on election day who disliked both candidates, uh, Trump carried those voters overwhelmingly.
0: So what are swing voters? Who are they? Where are they? And what moves them?
2: Well, as you've probably heard or read, that uh, we have moved into the world of called tribal politics, where people are either of a blue tribe or a red tribe or a purple tribe. But we're really going through a once in a lifetime, or certainly more than once a generation, a political transformation in our country. And so the alignment of people really going back probably since the beginning of the late 60s, early 70s, what defined what it meant to be a Democrat and what defined meant to be a Republican lasted for almost half a century in our country. And I think you began to see and you saw in 206 districts uh, in 2016, 206 districts, uh, those uh, districts voted Obama in 8, Obama in 12, and Trump in 16. And so in many ways, the political transformation in our country right now um, is, is much more Uh, geared around, if you know four things about a person, you have a pretty good idea which tribe they're in, their age, their race, their gender, and particularly their education. And so we're resorting who we are as Americans uh, based on those factors. And we're increasingly segregating our lives, obviously in terms of news consumption, but also in terms of where we live, where people are increasingly choosing to live around people of their own tribe. And so we're going through a political transformation in which the parties are being redefined uh, Republicans now are much more working class party, obviously disproportionately white voters, older voters, less educated voters, and the Democratic Party is aligned by non-whites, high high percentage of female voters, uh, high educated voters, and so that we're resorting ourselves politically in an age of transformation from a twentieth century industrial top-down society to a twenty-first century um, global and digital world.
1: Conventional wisdom says that that voters like change candidates. And those 206 counties where in 08 and 12 they went to Obama and in 16 they went to Trump, those were all platforms of change, different ways to get to that change. How much does that factor into those four categories where we know what tribe people are in and how much is that of that is just the, the typical voter going after the change candidate?
2: Well, we don't as a country necessarily – Prefer change. And in fact, for most of our recent American politics, uh, we've not opted for change. Uh, We had Reagan, Clinton, and Bush, all three uh, two term presidents. Uh, But we're going through a period of instability in our world and our country that's created uh, a desire for people for change. And they're dissatisfied with whoever's in power, regardless of which political party they are. And so, six out of the last seven elections, um, the voters voted for change. So six out of the last seven elections, they voted against what they voted for the previous two years. Right, And so they're not really right now as much voting for somebody as a voting against whoever is in power.
0: Are there reservoirs on both the Democratic and the Republican side of people who haven't participated? And is that the most important thing that Trump can do to mine those new voters or whoever the Democratic nominee is?
2: Well, I think the Trump strategy is clear. First of all, they're not running a 50-state re-elect strategy. They're running a probably a five state strategy, and that's all they're focused on. And they were quite clear, they did a briefing about a month ago. There are eight point nine million people in in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Eight point nine people who liked Trump and did not vote in twenty eighteen. And so they are making them a top priority. And and what basically they have a digital Operation that's masquerading as a campaign, and their manager is a digital guy, and and they've been quite clear in their digital strategy that in these those three states they're particularly focused in these smaller rural areas, smaller counties that normally aren't part of the political traffic of a presidential race. So, twenty-two percent of the people who vote uh, in Pennsylvania are in these underserved counties, and twenty percent in Wisconsin. So, for the Trump campaign. It's a five-state, six-state strategy. Uh, It's all based on getting their vote out, whether these people voted in the past or or would support them um, if they voted. Uh, It's very interesting, I don't know if you saw this week, the Knight Knight Foundation put out a report called 100 Million Voters. And there were 100 million voters who didn't vote in 2016. So they went in, I think they did 12,000, survey of 12,000 people. And these are people who are either registered and didn't vote more than once out of the last six elections or are not registered but could vote. And so they went into 12, uh, I think 10 target states and tried to figure out who these people are. And what you found out uh, in in Florida, Pennsylvania, and Arizona in particular, that contrary to conventional wisdom, in those three states in particular, uh, the non-voters are much more sympathetic to Trump. And so, Most people think the higher the turnout, the better it is for Democrats. And that is true in blue states. But in the states that are going to decide a close election, uh, it's not necessarily the case. And so Trump's entire strategy is a a five, six state max reelect campaign. And it's all geared to people who, if they vote, will support Trump.
0: And can you discern a democratic strategy to counter that?
2: Well, I think in part, I mean, and this is what depends on the candidate who's running and uh, Bernie Sanders, for instance, will tell you his entire strategy is based on motivating people who, who support what he believes in and getting them to vote. Uh, and they made the difference. They could have made the difference in 2016. I mean, you, you look back, and it seems counterintuitive, but but uh, 12% of the Sanders voters in 2016 voted for Trump in the general. And there's another 8% that either didn't vote or voted third party. And so while it seems counterintuitive that you can vote for Obama, Obama, and Trump – but it's the same thing that you saw a bunch of Ron Paul voters in 12 in the primary, vote for Obama in the general. So in this new world of politics, a Hillary Clinton and a Romney are closer together in the minds of a lot of voters. And when I wrote a piece about eight years ago called, Which Side of the Barricades Are You On?, which is, I think, the defining element of this political transformation. And so the Romneys of the world, the Hillary Clintons of the world are perceived to be on one side of the barricades and the Trumps and the Sanders are on the other side of the barricades. And so this new delineation between which side of the barricades you're on is not based on what political party you're from. It's war on whether you're part of the status quo or whether you're part of the side for change.
1: I would be curious how many of those 100 million voter, non-voters, are chosen non-voters, those who have access to vote and choose not to versus disenfranchised voters, felons who no longer have the ability to, individuals who who have been purged from voting rolls or have lost access to their polling or ability to register based on the, the Supreme Court's decision to gut Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Because if it's chosen non-voters, that squares to me. If it's those that have um, less access to vote or the ability at all, I wonder if that would skew those statistics.
2: Well... I don't know, but my guess is it's both, but I believe the vast majority are chosen, chosen non-voters. non-voters.
1: So I want to switch gears a little bit because uh, the last week we saw some back and forth between President Trump and former President Obama talking about the economy. President Obama uh, tweeted out something on the day that he, 11 years ago, signed the Recovery Act talking about getting out of the worst economic crisis in history, and and President Trump, of course, wanted to claim his own victory and and his ability to fix all of the economic issues. So, how much of today's economy is the center of Trump's support going into twenty twenty? How much of his his support and electability is about the economy?
2: Well, my overall frame of how you look at the election is pretty simple. There are about thirty percent of the Trump voters that are for Trump no matter what. Then there are another 15% roughly that don't like Trump, but like his policies. And so for that second bucket of voters who don't like his job approval on the on the economy is around 12 points higher than his job approval as president. So for that second group of voters, the economy is is hugely important uh, because they're voting for Trump in spite of the fact they dislike Trump and I know we're going to get to this later, but if you figure out how does Trump then do the math between 30 plus 15 in a two-person race and get to 50 and the answer is his opponent and getting that last mile, that last five percent, in this case his ads even say you don't have to like Trump to vote for him. Uh, and so to some extent for that last mile it's going to be you know voting for the devil you know versus the devil that you don't know. So I don't think Trump can get reelected because of the economy. But if the economy had gone in the tank, then there's no way in the world he could get reelected. But I think overall, the economy is a is a obviously a net positive for Trump. And one one thing one last thing I'll mention is, if you look back to President reelects, the third and fourth quarter of year three, and quarter one and quarter two of year four, that year period, it, by the end of the second quarter of this year the the cake is largely baked absent of some unexpected event in terms of what the voters are going to be feeling like in September when they start voting
1: it's got to be i mean we're 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 almost there it's got to be pretty well baked for trump going into the election so how front of mind is that to the 5% of voters those undecided voters or those non-voters is the economy yeah
2: well i think it'll be very decisive and i think the um there've been two challenges that the political, well, for the political world, there's been one challenge that no one's ever figured out. And then for the democratic world is a second challenge that they haven't figured out. For the broader political world, from the moment Trump rode down that escalator and announced his candidacy for president with a crowd that he paid for, nobody, whether it's the Republican primary, the, the general election in 2016, the last three years, no one has figured out the best argument and best case to make against Trump. And so he's still, no one has figured that out. The second piece, which is about the economy, is I don't think the Democrats have figured out a way in the context of relative economic prosperity, how you make an economic case against Trump.
1: All right, Joe, I know you're busy and don't have time to read, or in some cases, reread all the books you'd like, and you just discovered an incredible new app, and it's called Blinkist?
0: Yeah, Katie. Blinkist is quickly becoming one of the most important apps on my phone. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes need-to-know information, the key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read Or listen to. If you read a lot, but still don't get to have time to get to everything you want, Blinkist is made for you. You'll get the key points of a book in just minutes.
1: So, with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute or on your lunch break or while you're exercising. And 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. And it has a massive and growing library from politics to current events to history books and even topics like business and health. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to or were supposed to read in high school. I know you just started using it, Joe, but you've had a great experience so far, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, I was writing a column for CNN and I was talking about a book I had read several years ago and I frankly didn't have time to reread it. So I just went to Blinkist and in 15 minutes had all the key
1: takeaways. So from Michelle Obama's Becoming to Russian Roulette by Michael Isakoff and David Korn to Rick Wilson's Everything Trump Touches Dies, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price.
0: And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash words matter. Try it free for seven days. And save 25% off your new subscription.
1: That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash words matter to start your free 7-day trial. And you'll also get 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash words matter. I, I want to ask your thoughts on this and, and Joe's thoughts on this, too, and, and we'll get to the Democratic primary that's going on right now. But while we're talking about the economy, last week in Nevada, we saw the debate among the primary contenders in the Democratic Party, and we saw – you know, kind of a, a squarely socialist side, the people with Bernie. We saw, you know, strong capitalists with Bloomberg. And then we saw people like Warren who I think still is having a hard time articulating how she's squaring her views and her affection for capitalism, um, but also its woes that come along with it and, and dealing with her supporters that also align themselves with, with Bernie and with socialism. What do you make of those three approaches and do you think any rise as, as the the best option alternative?
2: Well, to be clear, while relatively speaking, Sanders and Warren's supporters might be in the same time zone, they're really quite different. Yeah. And a reasonably large pool of Warren voters, if she were to fall out, aren't going to go to Sanders. They're going to go to some of the other candidates. And I think that uh, if you look at the most recent Wall Street Journal poll, uh, there's simply not broad support for socialism in America. If you look at Harvard's done some polls on millennials around the country – And if you look at any subsets of national polls, younger people, millennials 30 and under, do have a higher level of support for socialism than other groups, largely because they've grown up in a world in which capitalism has screwed them and their families. Yeah. So they have no skin in the game. But the broad broad brush of America does not support socialism. We have had, and Joe and I, you know, we're in the Clinton administration, we're, we're part of this. Relative to the rest of the world, certainly say Europe, America's had since Reagan, for lack of a better term, almost wild west capitalism. We've had capitalism in its rawest form without any guardrails. And if you look in Europe and other parts of the world, whether it's certainly capitalist systems, um, there's there are more limits on it. Uh, and so I think that where, where Warren has has been moving is to try to stay where she has been generally speaking in terms of left of center on economic matters and certainly for more redistribution, progressive tax policies. But she's trying to she's been trying to trim her sails a little bit to be more acceptable to a broader group of people. And I think that's part of, as particularly starting around health care when she changed her policies, or at least the transition period. You know, there was always a notion that despite the fact they have different bases, that either Warren or Sanders was going to emerge from the left of center. And I think her support started willing away on the left as she started having more nuanced views on, on economic matters. But she is clearly trying to fill the moderate, more moderate-ish space for last week, more moderate space uh, than going after Sanders. And so I think that's where the center of the, part, the parties, either the centers, is sort of the almost... Raw socialism of Sanders or, or the more capitalism with guardrails that Warren's is trying to represent.
0: One of the things that we've talked about in the last couple of months is how Warren and Sanders on the far left of the party divide. And I'm interested in uh, your analysis of this. And I've talked a little bit about how working class voters tend to be looking at Sanders, but not Warren, but looking at Biden. And some others. And the more highly educated are not looking at Sanders. They're looking at Warren. But she's competing with Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar uh, for those. How do Democrats sort this out? And we can bleed right into talking about the Democratic nominees here because I think we're, we're kind of going there anyway. And But to create this message, to bring income inequality to life, to, to, to take grievance politics and turn it on its head and saying the top 1%, the stuff that Elizabeth Warren has talked about and talks about quite uh, eloquently but doesn't seem to be landing anyplace.
2: Well, we'll have to see. She certainly showed a little more energy recently. But I think you mentioned something a minute ago that I alluded to earlier, which is age, race, gender, and education – those are the drivers in American politics. And, so and, Bur- and
0: education has become so much more a delineator in the last decade or so, a- I think. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And that's where you look at Bush suburban Republicans who don't have a home right now. Uh, and I've had a number of uh, my Republican friends say to me, a lot of kind of Bush era Republicans, they'll say, I hate Trump. I don't want to vote for Trump. If you nominate Sanders, you nominate Warren. I'm voting for Trump. And so the trick for the Democrats is the, – the, the trick overall is where's the balance between how do you redistribute money and the spoils of society while at the same time not draining people's ambition to get ahead and do well? And so a lot of voters would think that Sanders is way too interested in redistribution – of, of money uh, and making it punitive f- for other people. Um, and, wh- and that's where Sanders uh, or uh, Warren, I think, is trying to find a bit more of a middle. Um, but the truth is, I don't think you can get the math to add up if you're just doing massive redistribution programs and just going after a limited number of high-income individuals and corporations to pay for all of it, not the size and scope of their social programs.
0: So let's jump into the the candidates. How do you handicap those still in the race? Everyone from the people who've been in from the beginning, um, you know, Biden, Warren, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, uh, Sanders, and then Michael Bloomberg, who has been making a big splash. He spent a half a billion dollars, which, I mean, for those who don't follow campaign spending, it's just unprecedented and potentially very mm-hmm. disruptive potentially a huge waste of money i mean we don't we don't know but handicap the field a little bit and the challenges of getting the nomination versus the challenges of winning the presidency
2: so let me put hopefully quickly up uh, some context to this if you go back to 2016 there were about 27 people that announced they're running for president. If you asked me before the campaign started, who was the least relevant person running for president and who was the second least relevant, I would have put Bernie Sanders at number 26 and Trump at 27. So and you're handicapping fa- yourself yeah. first yeah. before entering <laughs> yeah. the
1: conversation. But,
2: but the fact was those two people drove, Sanders didn't become the nominee, but those two people drove the political debate in 2016. They dominated that, the campaign and the both primaries were dominated by those two people, and then the general election. So, to get to the field right now, you have to have some context of how he got there. So Sanders has has stayed where he was in terms of what he was running for. He's got about the same vote share now. People who support him as he did before. You had you have to look at I think impeachment coming on top of this field on top of the race for six months. It really froze the race. People didn't really engage in the race, you had a high percentage of undecided voters. I think Sanders and Warren drove the debate in 2019 and drove the Democratic Party towards their positions on the left. And so what's happened now is, as we move into the actual voting and, and the, the specter hanging over them of impeachment is now gone people are getting much more kind of real about where are they. And so you've got this block of Sanders supporters that that it may be a high floor and a low ceiling, um, but it it is what it is. And it's probably around 30 percent that has been marinating in the political system now for three, four years. And it's sitting there. And then you've got these other candidates who are trying to create a lane and a space for themselves if you oversimplify it, it's mostly nuanced center-left politics, but none of them have the either the personality, the background, the ability to articulate a vision for where they le- want to lead the country, and so you've what you've got is a very flat electorate right now that's having a hard time falling in love with any of these candidates.
1: We saw all of the candidates together for the first time, including the newcomer, Mike Bloomberg, in Nevada last week. And I wanted to ask you what you thought of Bloomberg's performance in the debate and if it matters.
2: Well, he clearly uh, did not have a great debate. And, you know, one thing about running for president is you get better at it or you get gone. And so you had five people surviving the rigors of a two-year campaign who really have real muscle tone and have been at this a long time. Bloomberg, you know, hasn't been in a debate probably in almost a decade and hasn't really been out mixing it up for quite some time. He he clearly showed the rust and he was in some ways a guest to a party that's not only been going on for a long time, but kind of who he is, where he came from, is a bit, bit of an outsider. And so I don't think it killed his candidacy, but it certainly hurt, for a first impression, there are a lot of people who were lined up to go to Bloomberg with the expectations that the other center, center left candidates were going to be imploding. And I think that probably put a pretty significant chill. But, you know, you've got a freight train going right now that you saw in 2016 with with Trump where, yes, Trump had 30, 35 percent of the vote. And that means that two out of three people don't like Trump. But you had in, in 16, you had you know, Rubio and Christie and Cruz and all these guys that were hanging around and all splitting up the anti-Trump vote. And by the time they sort of tried to sort it all out, it was too late. And Trump had a head of steam. And so it's that's what the fear is for people who don't support Bernie Sanders that he's in the process now, uh, and California's coming up, and you know people have been voting in California now for already 10 days. That he, as this non-Sanders vote remains spread out, and Bloomberg's inability to really have a strong debate performance uh, made it hard for him to consolidate the center-center-left vote. The longer it's spread out, diffuse in terms of support levels, the better it is for Sanders.
1: I want to talk about two of the areas that you mentioned of the four that determine our tribe. The four are age, education, gender, and race. Gender and race are two big problems for Bloomberg, and none of the candidates are perfect on both, although some are better than others on both. How important are those two factors going to be on voting day?
2: Well, I mean, when you look at a... um, Primary, it's different than a general election. Yeah, both. So, in a primary, I would say gender and race for the Democrats is disproportionately important. It's certainly true for a Democratic nominee in a general election, but if you look at, I think it's around forty percent or so of the Democratic primary voters are African Americans. It's a hugely significant um, factor uh, in a Democratic primary, and you look at Sanders support, which skews younger. And so he's got a real leg up. And if you look at, um, you know, it's one of those misconceptions in politics, you know, they talk about Hispanic voters. Well, a Cuban in Florida is different than a Cuban in New Jersey. It's different yep. than a Puerto Rican in New York. Right. It's different than a uh, Mexican. that's different than an English-speaking household versus Spanish-speaking household versus first generation versus fourth generation versus young versus old. So there's so many layers. But if you look at on the non-white voters, they skew. Younger and younger voters, in general, and this applies to minority as well. They think different than the older than their than their older siblings or parents, and they're much more gettable uh, for anti-establishment candidates. They are, they they think all institutions have failed them. That's all they've seen since they grew up, and they would include the political parties as two more failed institutions. So. Question, of course, in a primary and in the general, but is is how much you can motivate young people to actually turn out? And Sanders proved he was pretty adapted that in Iowa, in a state that actually had a pretty low turnout this past year. And I think in Nevada, which skews younger, and, and I think they're going to have a very high turnout. So I think it's extremely important in the primary, and it's very true in the general. It's hard for me to see how a Democrat wins the general without picking up suburban, higher educated. Formerly Republican women, yeah. for instance.
0: Let's talk about the freight train for a second. By St. Patrick's Day, we're going to know the majority of delegates pledged. How fast is that train running? Can it be stopped? And if it can be, by whom and how?
2: Well, I think the, the, the date I use as the benchmark of the fork in the road for the Democratic Party is March 17th on the evening of March 17th, we all have had almost 70% of the delegates selected. Obviously, I think it's 42% or whatever in Super Tuesday. So in the evening of March 17th, we're either on the road to a nominee or on the road to a brokerage convention. And Democratic Party, as probably most of your listeners know, has no super delegates on the first ballot, no winner take all states. So when you start grinding out, in what is the equivalent of like a World War One style battle, where it's just one hill at a time, one delegate at a time? Once you get a lead, it's hard for anyone to catch up. And so, in terms of getting to Milwaukee, the question last uh, last week that Todd asked about you know we're going to support the nominee if they don't you know have enough delegates to get to the endorsement of the convention, even if they're short. Uh, so. I think the thing to watch is because most nominees will come to the convention a little short, but it's just a formality. But you need 1,900, I think, and 91 delegates to become the Democratic nominee. You know, if Sanders comes there with 1,820, that's a different conversation than if he comes there with 1,430. And so I think it's really going to matter if he is, in fact, the leading delegate, the candidate with the most number of delegates. It's really going to matter how close he is to the tape in terms of whether he's denied the nomination. And so if Sanders continues his strength, assuming the Democratic other candidates in the field, many of them stay in so that the non-Sanders vote is divided up, ultimately the trick for the Democratic Party is going to be if you believe that Sanders can't beat Trump and in fact that Sanders could cause the Democrats to lose the House – and certainly not take the Senate. The question will be: How do you deny Sanders the nomination without alienating his voters? <laughs> Who you know, Sanders is not a Democrat. Sanders went all the way to in twenty sixteen to the convention without pulling out. So the dilemma is: On the one hand, how do you deny him the nomination uh, and still have his people come along in November? Versus. How do you, if you feel he's going to cost the party the cycle, how do you stop him? And so how do you thread that needle of denying him the nomination without losing his supporters? And the the further, the closer he is to having the necessary delegates, assuming he's short, the closer he is to that ni- 1991 delegate total, I think the harder it is for the party to deny him the nomination.
0: So if you're the campaign manager for generic Democrat, establishment Democrat, Mm -hmm. whether that be a candidate or the proponents of the status quo, how do you go after Sanders over the next two months?
2: Well, I think you saw last week in Nevada, most of the candidates only went after Sanders if he was a foil towards something else. Right now, they're running against their other moderate compadres, which makes – trust in repairing the breach and cutting a deal much more difficult every day. And so I think they're in a zero-sum game right now, not against Sanders, but with the rest of the field, which makes it really impossible to kind of figure this thing out. You saw it, as I mentioned earlier, in 2016, where the only thing that Republicans could agree on is that Trump would, be, would run the party into the ground and they can't, he has to be denied the nomination. But their own personal ambitions and personal animosities and all made it impossible for them to stop, as you called it, the freight train before it got so much speed you can't stop it.
1: I thought the best punch landed on Bernie last week in the debate Um, And and it came from someone who had many punches landed on him was from Bloomberg when he pointed out that your criticisms come from a millionaire with three houses. And then he actually got Bernie to list out his three houses, which I'm not in politics. I'm not in Democratic politics, but I suspect that that listing out will be in an ad or two between now and November. But is that the best way to go after Bernie?
2: Well, it depends on the context. If you're talking about a Democratic primary.
1: Yeah. Uh, Now, here and now,
2: I don't think that's the best way to go after Bernie because anybody who's for Bernie, who's really for Bernie, like the same thirty percent that really for Trump, there's not not an intellectual argument you're going to have about them that's going to have them peel
0: off. They're in love.
2: Yeah, but yes, and I think I think though that that (laughs) what what I think Clinton did a really good job of, and I think Obama did a really good job of, is is voters have to really have two things that they feel. One is that you actually have a vision for where they're going to lead the country, that you can make their life better, that you believe the words coming out of your mouth, are authentic, and that you can take on and beat Trump. And you really have to do both. And they clearly, every poll will show you that, that the Democrats are obsessed with beating Trump in terms of what they're looking for in a candidate, but they're looking for someone who they feel like is up to the job and actually can articulate a vision for the future. Like Trump, don't like Trump. He's got a clear vision of where he wants to lead the country. He uses the same words and language when he ran that it, since he took office. And it's the same thing with Sanders. What you agree with him, disagree with him. They have a point of view. They have a philosophy. They can articulate it. And people who support them, think that they're saying it because they believe it, not just because they're saying it. And I think Democratic candidates who, as I mentioned earlier, had been fighting an environment which no one was paying attention to them because between Trump dominating the news cycle and impeachment, um, they really didn't get an opportunity. But when they have had an opportunity, to use your analogy from a few minutes ago, no one's kind of fallen in love with them because they're not really articulating a vision for the future.
1: You mentioned the the House and the Senate in the previous question, and I actually want to ask about that too. What are the chances that Democrats, uh, with whoever's at the top of their ticket, are able to keep the House and flip the Senate?
2: Well, in terms of the Senate, it's going to take a big Democratic year. It's a bad map for the Democrats. Assuming that Democrats can't take the Senate without taking the White House. So assuming they take the White House, that means they have to come away with a net of three Senate pickups from the Republicans. They hold the seat in Alabama, the Jones seat, which is an accidental pickup. So Democrats will probably lose that. So when you do the math of how do the Democrats take the Senate, uh, it's going to take a pickup of four Republican seats. And you can argue there are three that are, you know, within reach in Arizona, Colorado, and Maine. But in order to get that fourth seat, uh, it have to be a North Carolina, it could be a Kansas could be a Georgia, could be Iowa. But those are states that are only going to vote for a Democrat for the Senate if it's a big Democratic year. Now, in the House, it's quite a different matter. Um, it's 31 seats is what the is, is the margin. I think Democrats are, are well-positioned to hold the House under anything other than a Republican landslide um, due to the nature of that. And just taking a step back for a minute, because Democrats are going through still post-traumatic stress from 16 But the fact is, since Donald Trump has been elected president, he has been poisoned for the Republican Party. They've lost 10 governorships, 40 House seats, 10 states have gone all blue, 435 state legislative seats have flipped to the Democrats. And so the Republican Party is becoming poisoned in a lot of suburban Republican-leaning districts. And you see Democrats picked up House seats in South, 18, in South Carolina, Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia. And so part of the formula of what Trump is doing to win re-election, which is to appeal to those swing voters in a handful of states, is what's turning off so many Republicans in these congressional districts. And over 40% of the people right now in the Republican House, uh, 40% of the people who were in the House when Trump took office are gone. And so what's happened is you've had the Trumpification of the Republican Party. And so who's left as Republicans are more Trumpian and they run poorly in House swing districts. And so the only chance that Republicans have to overcome that bias would be to have some Democrats' worst fear of a you know Trump running against a very weak Democrat in the presidential and it brings down the party. So,
0: so we don't make the mistake that I think Democrats have made in almost every debate. And not focus on – you you've alluded to impeachment a couple times as freezing the race, and I completely agree with that. We've talked about that a little bit here. How does it factor in the corruption within – the just sort of pervasive corruption, the we don't know what he's going to do next, and that he's enriching himself and he's pardoning these people and all of this stuff. How does that play in to swing voters how fertile is that for Democrats, and how do they make that case? And it goes a little bit to Democrats haven't figured out how to make the case. Is that where they should focus? Or should they focus yeah. on health care and pre-existing yeah. conditions? Well, let's turn it
2: on its side for a minute. Yeah. The Engendering a greater feeling in this country that everyone's corrupt, every system, every structure, every institution is corrupt. The coarsening of our society is central to Trump's strategy to get reelected. It's an overt strategy for him in a sense I would call it to burn the house down to save it, so the more people come away feeling that everyone's on the take, everything is corrupt, nothing's on the level. you can't trust anything you read, everybody's got to winner that feeds into his narrative about taking on the system and fighting the man, so to speak, in terms of Democrats, I think they got to give people reason to vote for him and The corruption, all the stuff about Trump that makes Democrats froth at the mouth, it's all built in to the stock. Everyone knows all that. So the question is...
0: So being even more corrupt isn't any... There's no benefit anymore. And I think
2: healthcare was the single most important issue in 2018. And healthcare is an issue on health, but healthcare is an issue on the economy. And so I think that Democrats have to talk about issues that people care about. And I I don't know how much you guys get outside the bubble, but when you're out in America, um, there's a whole well, we're, different- We're afraid, yeah. very afraid. We never get out of the bubble. There's a, there's a whole different conversation going on now out there. Now, that's
1: not true. My Georgia roots disagree. Okay. <laughs> I was just there this past week, yeah. so.
2: But anyway, it's a whole different conversation out there. So
0: It's is about it, their lives. You're Now you're the Speaker of the House um, that controls the Democratic agenda and, and messaging until we have a nominee, and there's a, a very important months ahead. Do you veer away from oversight and focus more on healthcare, prescription drugs, pre-existing conditions, and, you know, bread and butter issues?
2: Well, I would do both, but I would definitely want to lead much more on a daily basis with the issues that matter in people's lives. I wouldn't abandon the, over, the oversight function. I mean, there's stuff that we should be doing just because for history, if we allow things to happen and there's not oversight, and there are going to be some things that an oversight that you know the Democrats should make a big deal about. But fundamentally, I think the people in Congress need to deal with the issues uh, that people back home care about and why they sent them to represent them.
1: I want to, Joe, started with looking at a 35,000-foot view, and I want to zoom back out at that and talk about the Democratic Party and where we're headed politically as a country. Talk a little bit about Trump as a symptom and what's going to be left in his wake.
2: Well, you know, he is a symptom of the problem He didn't create the problem. And when you started, as I mentioned earlier, if you took Sanders as the 24th most relevant person running and Trump as the 25th and they ended up dominating the debate, they are symptoms of a, a notion for most people that the system is broken. They have nothing to lose. They're for people. They want people to come in to blow it up. As I mentioned earlier, we've had six out of seven of last elections or change elections. Um, I when the day after the election in November, this election is not going to resolve the divisions in our country, and uh, if if Trump gets reelected, you're going to have four years of, of enormous Democratic activity in the states to try to blunt the administration. If the Democrats get elected, they're going to be thirty percent of the Trump voters who are going to continue fighting the Trump fight even if Trump is not there. So I think we're probably another five to ten years away from getting out of this trough that we're in. We're going through the biggest transition since the late 1800s. You know, you had, in the beginning of the last decade, you had, we went in to invade Iraq, which destabilized the most unstable place in the world. And you can see, every day we feel the implications of that with Syria blowing up still, the immigrants who flooded into Europe. Uh, You had the, uh, we had an economic slowdown in our country that started in the early 1970s that you know, hit the great tipping point with the uh, great recession of 2008. The third thing was the um, technology changes and the iPhone went to market in the middle of all that, and disruptions and the loss of jobs. And the last was demographic changes with uh, becoming a close to majority, non-majority. Country. So all these things happened at the same time and created what they call a hinge moment in history. If you think about a hinge on a door, it connects one piece of wood to another. So we're transitioning from one era to another. And so right now, our institutions are incapable of managing this change. So most people think our institutions are either broken or they're corrupt. And so how do we get out of this? And when do we get out of this? My view is it's going to take another five to 10 years. We're going to continue these divisions. Basically, I think the baby boomers are going to have to exit the stage. And the millennials, who are the largest population in our country now and the largest voting group, they actually – don't want to continue the fights we've had in this country since the 60s, since the baby boomers emerged and took over. So actually, I'm pretty optimistic that we'll come out of this. Um, But I think it's going to take deep into this decade until at some point the country is going to be so fed up with the leadership in this country that they're going to start punishing elected officials for acting the way that they are. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon because we're going through this monumental once in a hundred year transition and and we in this period of transition, and you saw it in the beginning of the industrial revolution, the beginning of the last century, it takes 20, 30 years to be able to make a transition. And remember, lastly, our political institutions are, are not the courts, but our elected politics. These are lagging institutions. They are the last place to get a political consensus. So the country has to figure out what it wants they have a consensus on that. And at that point, the elected officials will fall in line because if they don't, they know they won't either get elected or get reelected. And so we haven't sorted out these divisions yet. And part, frankly, of how you sort it out is the older people who've been running, the generation been running this country, um it's going to sort start sorting itself off when they die. And they're no longer in leadership in our country. but but as long as they're here, and dominating our leadership, we're going to continue in the same fights.
0: Well, for the record, Doug and I are willing to leave right now, Katie, and let you <laughs> solve <laughs> this <laughs> problem. Far beyond um, from me. I just asked the question. Yeah, let me uh, let me finish with. Let's go beyond your five to ten years, mm-hmm. uh, and I think your optimism is you know gives me hope. But talk about the two party system whether we will cease being a two-party system, or if we stay in it, what the parties will look like. I can make an argument now that it's untenable within the Democratic Party. You have the Justice Democrats, Democratic Socialists, and the traditional Democrats that will not be able to find common ground from an ideological point of view, from a you know programmatic. And I can make the same argument on the Republican side, that you've got the Trumpian Tea Party With the traditional suburban Republican Party that it's hard to see the common ground. And then you've got overlaying all of this is demographic changes in the country that will very much reshape. Do you see 2040 Do you see two parties continuing, but there's a shift in some ways? Do you see three parties? You know, do you see splintering and there being, you know, eight parties. How how do you, how do you view that?
2: Well, I think there'll be two dominant trends over that 20 year period. One is we're going to have political reform because you can't ultimately change where we are right now if you're not happy with it, unless you change the rules and the reward systems. And so eventually we'll get political reform on, you know, tearing down probably the electoral college so that all 50 States matter, probably some public financing, uh, nonpartisan reapportionment and redistricting, open access on voting. So I think you're going to have political reform, which will, you know, you look in California and other places where you have jungle primaries, and all of a sudden the incentive is to reach moderate voters. So we will get political reform because the country will be so fed up with the current system that they will force it, and it's not one party or the other; it's both. And the second thing is, you know, if you look at the most current polling, as unpopular as Trump is and a lot of the Republicans, the Democratic Party is no more popular than the Republican Party. In fact, it's less popular today. And and I mentioned earlier about young people who are disproportionately, right now, Democrats, not because they like Democrats, but because they hate Trump and hate the Republicans. Uh, and Trump is actually going after some of the younger African-American voters and younger Hispanic voters because they have allegiance to no party. And they, they think these institutions are as failed and as corrupt as the other ones in our society. And so we're going to end up, I think, with political reform, we're going to have political institutions that reflect where people are in their lives. And so what does that mean? Well, that means you can have a conservative party, progressive party, you can have a Tea Party, you can have a Green Party. And so I think you're going to end up having parties that are organized around issues that people care about and not trying to fit into mid 20th century institutions that are no longer relevant in our
0: lives i think we're gonna leave it there doug that's uh we're <laughs> we're, we're, we're gonna have eight parties and there's gonna it's it's gonna look like uh, the british elections where some kind of funny suit gets up as they announce the winner in congressional races. <laughs> and, and,
2: and katie will be the only one there to see it. that's
0: right <laughs> fingers it's, crossed
1: this, if everything goes well this, this
0: problem is all yours katie yeah have fun thanks, thanks
1: for that on behalf of all millennials thank yeah. you
0: thanks doug that was great okay,
1: thank, thank you doug
2: yeah
0: Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words
2: Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.